Welcome, Capital Raisers. Today, Mike Roeder and I discuss the intricacies of scaling fast to 2,500 units in the show, among many other things, including your favorite topic, capital raising. Are you guys ready to raise? I'll be at the Family Office Club Capital Raising Titans event in Miami on August 1st, and I'd love to see you there. Use the 50% off discount code TITANS50 on the link in the show notes. With that, it's Capital Razor Show, episode 276, and it starts now. Rock and roll, I got Mike Roder on the Capital Razor Show. Welcome, brother. How you doing? Doing very well. Thanks so much for having me on, Ruben. I appreciate it. Yeah, dude. So for anybody that doesn't know, this is the first time Mike and I have met. So we're going to dive into his business model a little bit, talk some capital raising. He's a fellow snowboarder, so we might dive down that road a little bit and fellow podcaster. So this is cool, man. Welcome to the show once again. Capital Raiser Show Season 3 brought to you by Pitch Decks, our friends at Family Office Club. So with that being said, man, tell us a little bit about your background, Mike. How did you get involved into syndication and raising capital? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to take you back to 2009 when I first got started in real estate investing. I was an insurance agent commuting about an hour and a half each way to my corporate job on the phone, pounding out phone calls day in and day out, You know, probably 70 to 100 phone calls a day trying to hit my sales quota. And at that period in time, I was thinking there's got to be a better way to build up passive income and to become financially free eventually. So what I ended up doing is I got into single family rental properties, accumulated a few of those. And at that time, I realized that it wasn't working. I was suffering from burnout because what had happened is I was trying to cash flow on these deals. So I was doing all the maintenance. I was leasing to the tenants. I was running up to a small town in Minnesota after my job was done for the day which took about another hour of my time to get up there. And then I'd have to drive home. So another hour. So really it added another job to my plate. And here I was thinking that it was going to solve my problems and it was doing the exact opposite. And at that point in time, my business partner had been purchasing apartment complexes out in Washington and then in Minnesota as well. And his properties were doing well. They were cash flowing. He had third-party property management in place. So he wasn't doing all the ins and outs. And after quite a few conversations, we decided to, to go into business and buy some multifamily properties. It really made sense. So we bought a 20 unit, we bought an eight unit. This is all while I had that corporate job. And I realized how beneficial it was to go with larger multifamily properties instead of these single family properties. So we started cash flowing. Those assets were doing well. We had a great relationship with one another. So we formed a company called Granite Towers Equity Group back in about 2016, so almost seven years ago now. And we started to syndicate projects. And what syndication means is you're pooling investors' monies to buy a larger deal, to get the economies of scale, maybe to buy in a better market, to get better property management. And from there on out, you know, it was really fuel on the fire. We started growing pretty rapidly and were able to buy some great projects in the Midwest. And then eventually we moved out to a couple other more landlord-friendly states and cities. Cool. Our audience is pretty familiar with syndication. We talk a lot about capital raising specifically for commercial real estate. I think a lot of people are tuning in because they want to scale their capital raising and get into larger and larger deals and or get into their first syndications or maybe you know they've co-GP'd and they want to get their full-blown 
GP card and kind of take mm-hmm. on their own, start their own business. So I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that we could dive into that would help the aspiring capital raiser and scaling multifamily syndicator. So Granite Towers Group 2016, you started with smaller, well, with single families, moved into smaller multifamilies. You mentioned in the beginning that there you guys were doing offsite property management or your partner was. I've come to find that typically when you have offsite property managers in different states, it's always great to get to the amount of units where you can have somebody on site to make it kind of mm-hmm. feasible. So when you started syndicating, how big were the deals? I'm curious about the growth, right? So because a lot of yep. people are scaling. When you started syndicating, how did you find out about that model and how's it scaled so far? Yeah, great question. So we, after we bought the 20 unit and the eight unit, my business partner had bought other, you know, several other smaller properties where they're operating on scattered management. So you had a third party property management company in place, but there wasn't on-site personnel because the deals were too small, but we were looking to syndicate. We were looking to grow, to get the economies of scale to have that on-site personnel because we knew how crucial that was. And at that time, we joined a mentorship group down in Dallas, Fort Worth, which really helped us push forward. Who was that? Just out of curiosity. Yep. So that's called the Sumrock Crew. Cool. I'm actually going to their event here. Got it. Yep. Fantastic group, especially if you're looking to get started in, in the syndication world. How we grew was the first year, it took us about nine months for us to land our first syndicate. So our first syndication, it was a 45 unit up in Western Wisconsin, again, scattered management. It wasn't big enough to support on-site personnel, but that was a nice home run. We held that about three years. We ended up achieving about a 75% annualized return. And from there we scaled up. So the next year we bought three projects. The first project that second year that Granite Towers was in existence was an 86 unit. Then we bought a 101 unit. And then we scaled up from there. Fast forward to today, we have about 2,500 units under our portfolio as general partners. And then we went full cycle on another handful of deals, seven deals total that we've sold. But it was, you know, it was slow growth. Again, the first year when we were syndicating, it was one deal. The next year, it was three deals. I believe the year after that, four. Last year, we did six. This year, you know, we'll see what happens with the economy and where it's at. Cool. So from a 20 unit and an eight unit to a 45 unit, that was your first syndication. Mm-hmm. Let's chat it up a little bit about, you know, things that you learned on that first syndication. What was your role? I'm I'm curious about that. Yeah, great question. So Dan and I really shared roles, a lot of overlap. We were both doing the asset management, you know, sending out the investor updates, looking over the monthly financials doing the property site visits. I would do those a little bit more often since my business partner lives out on the West Coast, but we overlapped on all the responsibilities. We didn't have any in-house employees. So we were doing it all besides the day in and day out items that the property management company was taking care of. Worked really well. And we did that for, I believe the first five deals. And then after five deals, we started hiring in-house employees, you know, so that way we could continue to scale, continue to do really well at asset management, our current deal flow that we had under contract or that we had in-house. That's how we grew. The in-house employees, Mm -hmm. very curious, who was your first hire? What did you have them do? Because, and then, so how many people does your team currently have? Great question. So I'll, I'll run through the list. So our first employee that we hired was an in-house accountant, you know, to keep our books clean, concise, to be able to get K-1s out very, very quickly when it came 
time to prep for taxes. It also cut down on costs. So we hired him first. Now he was a little bit of jack of all trades because we only had five deals. Obviously the accounting side, we didn't have enough for him to do. So he handled a lot of our investor relations, investor onboarding, other items as well. And he's still with us today. Fantastic employee. The second team member that we brought on was an asset manager, and she was local to the DFW market where the bulk of our portfolio is. 20 plus years of experience in property management, very great team member there. Then we brought on a couple of interns that worked for us, and one of those interns turned into a full-time employee. He's our analyst now. And then actually we had another intern that came on as a full-time employee. And I, I think that's a great way to test the market. You test and see how driven they are, you know, yep. what, what their personality is like. It's worked extremely well for us. You know, there's a lot of interns out there that are looking for experience in the real estate space. So a great way to, to be able to. How did, how did you them. find those guys just out of curiosity? And yeah, that's, that's a great question. So the first one actually reached out to us. We had a few people reach out to us, you know, just saying, Hey guys, we'd love to, to be involved with your organization. Would you be willing to, to take on an intern? The second and third intern, we had just posted on social media that we were looking for an intern. And, you know, they had sent in their resume and it worked out really well. And then we also have a couple of virtual assistants that work for us full time as well. What did the virtual assistants do? Yeah. So one of the, the virtual assistants looks over the financials. They look over our weekly call spreadsheets. They analyze all of our deals. And again, this is just a first pass. Obviously it goes mm -hmm. through a second filter in our company after it gets done with them. But a lot of the analytical tasks that need to be done. The second virtual assistant, she handles everything marketing wise. So, you know, taking care of our podcast, editing our podcast, posting to social media, newsletters, partially our monthly updates, all items that, that a VA can do really well with. Okay. So being that you have your own podcast that you started a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. what all kinds of stuff? So, cause some of the listeners here are podcasters. Yeah. Or aspiring podcasters. There's, I've seen a lot of people that have come on the show and had such a good time on the show that they started their own. Yep. But it's a lot of work, man. And so I have an editor that does audio. He's out of Poland. And then pitchdex.com does all of my video promo clips. And then I go through and then re-edit some of the stuff and make sure that, you know, because we have a show on capital raising that everything is in compliance. People are not talking about anything that that is a violation of securities law, et cetera, which the virtual assistant, you know, or, or the podcast editor doesn't necessarily know what's legal to talk about and what's not, et cetera. Certainly. But I'm curious, you know, for the aspiring podcaster, what kind of stuff do you have your guys do your virtual assistants? And then we'll chat a little bit about the social media that they do because that's an important part of investor yeah. nurturing and education. Great question. So they, the virtual assistant will do the cover art. So any social media that we're going to post, you know, they put together that artwork. They also edit the podcast. They upload the podcast. We do not have them put together the description or the title. Those are items that we have our in-house employees take care of just because, you know, the, our in-house team here in the U S understands real estate a little bit better. And so they're able to portray the verbiage that we're looking for. And then we also have our marketing expert on our team look over everything that the virtual assistant has done. So once they're complete with all those tasks on the podcast, it goes through again, that second filter just to make sure everything is looking fantastic. Cool. Who's that marketing guy? I don't, I don't remember hearing that person get hired. Yep, Are so you talking about the accountant? 
originally? Uh, no. So we, the second intern we brought on full-time, he heads up our marketing department. Cool. Yep. Cool. That's a really big part, right? If you can get someone to help you with your marketing, because as syndicators, a lot of times we're focused on growing the business and acquiring assets and underwriting, and we're not always so great at the marketing side of things. So mm -hmm. to have somebody that is a great intern that does your marketing and your social media or, you know, have a combination of people that handle those aspects has been been huge for our business. I'm curious, this particular guy, this one that was originally an accountant and also did investor relations, do they handle all the same things or have they kind of more specialized? More specialized in accounting, especially as we've grown our portfolio, but they do still work a lot with our CRM platform and investor onboarding. Okay, so I'd love to hear about the investor onboarding and investor relations. What is that? What are those roles? How do you, because, you know, sometimes I think people struggle with like, how do we get an investor to, once they've heard about us, they've been educated, nurtured on the space, they understand the benefits of multifamily and passive investing. Now, how do we get them to come and invest with us? How do we get them across the finish line? You know, some people will even say, if you have to sell them at the end, then you haven't done a good enough job educating and nurturing them. Yeah. What's your what's your kind of take on on the investor onboarding and getting them yeah, so, to invest? So I completely agree with that. I think if you have to be really salesy at the end, you know, not only have you not educated them properly, but it's probably going to push them away a little bit. And I think there's always a fine balance of being too salesy and not salesy enough. You know, personally, our investor onboarding, we want to make it extremely easy for the investor to sign up for a deal, to wire over their funds. We also want to make it, you know, very understandable when they're taking a look at the financial information and the pitch deck on each property that we have as an investment opportunity. And so it's a, it's a whole team process. It's not just the one individual, it's multiple team members on our team that are coming together and making sure that the process is easy. CRM platform that we utilize is called Juniper Square. Okay. And so, you know, our investor relations and investor onboarding gentleman, he's making sure that the documents are coming through, they're getting signed properly, the wire instructions are getting sent off, you know, immediately, and then following up with the investors, you know, to make sure that the funds are coming over quickly. And for our team, you know, communication is everything. When you're raising capital, you need to make sure that you're communicating very quickly. So if someone reaches out to you with a question, make sure you get back to them very quick. Same goes for, you know, monthly updates. Once you have a pool of investors that have invested with you, you know, make sure that you're keeping clear communication with them. You're communicating the good, the bad, the ugly. You're also, you know, allowing them to access all of the financials, allowing them to see what CapEx projects have been done, what needs to be done, what can be improved on. And I think that's something that we do exceptionally well, and it leads to a lot of referrals. I think that's something that a lot of investors should focus on or general partners that they might be missing the ball on. Yeah, we hit communications quite a bit, investor communications and making sure that you're being transparent, mm -hmm. present of mind, communicating what's going on with the project as much as possible. A lot of people talk about investor donators, right? So people that have a poor, poor experience on the communication side, they may have made money, but then they still leave the syndicator to invest with somebody else because they don't feel like they're getting communicated well enough or it's challenging to get the sponsor on the phone. 
Tell us a little bit about this focus and emphasis on investor communications and why it's so important. Because I think, like you mentioned, a lot of people miss that significantly by a huge target. Certainly. So I think I think there's a lot of investors out there that, you know, if let's say you're doing great on a project or even if your project isn't doing fantastic, they're likely going to continue to invest with you if they have that trust and they feel really good about your team. Obviously, every project's not going to be a home run. So there's a few things that you can do. You know, number one, respond quickly. And if you have a team, you know, set up the expectation that you're getting back to investors the same day. And if it's late in the day, you know, within 24 hours, that's very, very important to us. Even if you don't know the answer, respond back to them. Hey, I'm going to look into this for you. You know, I'm going to get back to you within so-and-so time, or this person on my team is going to get back to you. Also monthly updates, like we just talked about. I have seen multiple general partners where they don't send out monthly updates, or maybe they're sending it out on the first of every month. And all of a sudden they are sending out one on the 15th of the month and it's just sporadic, you know, keep very consistent and make sure that you're sending those every single month. I also know, you know, some general partners that'll send out quarterly updates. Personally, I would say the more frequent that you can send that out, the better and keep it clean and concise. Those monthly updates, you know, some people put too much data, nice and concise to the point, easy to understand where they're not having to spend 20 minutes reading through it. Maybe they can get through it in two to three minutes. I think that's the way to go. Obviously give access to the financials, be fully transparent. That would be number three. So if there's an issue with the property, communicate that with your investors. You know, you're gonna have issues when you don't communicate properly and all of a sudden things start to snowball and you have to go to your investors and say, hey, you know, this happened, you know, three months ago. That's not a good situation to be in. So you always wanna be transparent with your investors. Now, what are you telling people about the economy? And because a lot of people are putting their money away and waiting for some changes mm -hmm. to happen. It's obviously really important, like when things like the I mean, I guess it doesn't happen every day, but the pandemic was a huge opportunity for people to stay front and center. And the people that kind of disappeared and got quiet during COVID, they lost some investors, I would say. Mm -hmm. There's a high probability that that was the case. And I saw a lot of people stand up and become leaders and stay present of mind during COVID when people didn't want to talk? What was that process like for you? How did you deal with the pandemic? Yep. <clears throat> Great question. So during the pandemic, we upped our communication with our investors, you know, just to make sure that we were staying in front of the ball game to make sure that they understood exactly what was going on. We also added a lot of metrics. So for instance, you know, when we were sending out our monthly updates, we would fill them in on how much rent relief we expected to come in and where the tenants were at with those items, communicating on delinquency and vacancy and all the items that are extremely important to be transparent about. So I think our investors really enjoyed the additional transparency and the additional communication. Fast forward to today with where the economy's at, you know, we are providing information in our newsletters about, you know, why we're still bullish on multifamily during an economic downturn. You know, I think we're going to be dealing with this economic downturn for years to come. And personally, I love multifamily, even during an economic downturn. Now, it depends on what submarket you're in, what yeah. type of asset class you're in, but we typically buy, you know, B assets so they're insulated you know from the vacancy spiking up you know typically you have a class that moves to b b that moves to c 
And we also buy in areas where it's business friendly. You have a population growth, it's landlord friendly. So that insulates us. Plus our nation is a renter nation. You know, if you think about it right now, about 35% of the nation is renters. And there's a lot of industry reports out there that are saying, you know, by 2025, 2026, we'll probably be up to 38%. You know, 3% might not sound like a lot, but if we increase 3%, that is a significant increase. And, you know, builders aren't building B or C class properties. They're building A to A plus properties. So we feel really good about the demand that's coming down the pipeline over the next couple of years as well. There's definitely a massive shortage of housing going on across the country, and that's only going to get worse. Exactly. There certainly is. And you have to you have to pay attention to supply, right? In certain submarkets, you know, you might have a lot of A-class supply coming on the line. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a syndicator's job. When you're underwriting deals, make sure that you pay attention to what the supply pipeline is like, how that's going to affect your property. But again, if you're buying, you know, B and C class properties, you should be pretty well insulated. So people that go through different multifamily courses and guru programs, they get excited about becoming a GP in their first couple of deals. And then as they start scaling, they realize that they may not have accounted for, oh, now not only do I get to do all of these things for syndication, but there's this process where I'm taking on employees and now I have to manage a team and they don't think about some of the things that a scaling syndicator has to go through as you've been growing to get to the part ownership or GP ownership or assets under management of 2,500 units. What are some of the big things that you can tell the scaling syndicator that they should prepare for, that they should be aware is coming in terms of scaling and becoming a manager of people? Great question. So I would say first off, hire before you need it, especially if you're scaling pretty quickly. You know, if you're buying two, three, four properties a year, personally, I think that you should look at hiring a couple of properties before you need it. So that way you're set up properly. Otherwise, what happens is you get too far down the road. You're extremely busy. It's harder to train the employees. It's harder to find the time to bring them on. I would also say, you know, hire A players, spend a little bit more on compensating the person properly and spending more than you think that you should. And you're going to attract better personnel. They're likely going to stick with you longer. They're going to do a much better job, which is going to save you a lot of money. Plus they're going to alleviate a significant amount of stress and they're probably going to allow you to buy more and better deals. So that would be another tip there. Yeah, I would say those are the two most important pieces. And then also, once you have the employees on your team, make sure that you figure out some sort of task management. Because what happens is when you have multiple employees, you send out tasks. Maybe you're using Gmail and you're sending out tasks saying, hey, this needs to be done. This needs to be done. You know, complete this by this date. You got to have a system where you can follow up and you can see if that task has been done. And when it was completed, because the larger you grow your organization, the more things that are going to slip through the cracks. And that's not saying that you have a bad employee. It's just your employees probably have a lot on their plate. So you need something to track that. And then how about the difference between bringing people on to get an equity position versus just paying them as employees? Do any of your employees get equity in the company or in the deals? They don't. However, we do partner with co-general partners on our deal. So they would then, you know, get equity in the deal. They wouldn't be hired by Granite Towers Equity Group, our company. So we've done it both ways where we have additional people coming in on the general partnership side. 
But if we're hiring someone, they're fully with Granite Towers, they get a salary, they might get some additional compensation like bonuses, but they don't have equity in our company. And then the co-GPs that you work with, how does that work when you are onboarding a co-GP and getting them, you know, typically they're raising equity and doing some other kind of ongoing duty throughout the life of the entire deal. But what do you tell them to communicate or how do you manage their communication with their LPs? Do you manage it all together or do you let them manage their own limited partners? totally depends on the co-general partners, their preference. So if they would prefer to manage their LP investors, then we send them the templates of our monthly updates, any information that we're sending out to our investors, and they can send it to their investors. We also have some co-general partners that rather have us do all the work. And in that circumstance, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to send out all the communication to their investors. When you're bringing on co-GPs, Personally, I think the biggest thing is just making sure that you really, really enjoy working with that person and that it's going to be easy to work through issues. With multifamily or any other type of commercial asset, you're going to have issues along the way. There's going to be problems that come up. And if you have someone that gets heated extremely quickly or they're hard to work with, it is going to create a significant amount of stress in your life. And so just make sure that you know, like, and trust that person. And that when an issue arises, they're going to be able to take a step back and say, Hey, how can we solve this problem? And then, so how do you manage the negotiation part? Do you just basically say, Hey, for co-GPs, if we were to ever to take one on, this is kind of what they would get and that's it. Or do you let them in some cases negotiate, Hey, well, I'm bringing this to the table and I'm doing this also. So I should deserve a bigger portion of the management fees or the administration or any kind of fees that the GP would get, I should get some of that. How does that work? Or tell me more. Yeah, great question, Ruben. So it really depends on the individual that's coming on the team and what they're going to be doing. For us, we fully asset manage most of our properties. Now we'll have the co-GPs involved to some extent, but we're doing the bulk of the work. Let's say a GP is coming in and they plan on doing some of the asset management and they're bringing, you know, or potentially bringing $5 million of equity to the table. And they're going to be doing some on-site visits. That's going to be drastically different than someone that's coming on. Maybe they plan on raising a million dollars. They're going to be doing, you know, they're going to be on the weekly phone calls. They're not located in the region that the assets in. So they're not going to be able to do as many site visits. It all depends on what value that person is bringing to the table. I've seen some people have like a sliding scale, right? So if you do asset management, you get this. If you do construction management or manage the contractors, if you are doing property management or managing the property managers, if you're bringing on more capital or participating in the marketing, if you're helping us with our CRM, if you're helping us with the development of the webinars and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the more that they add on to that sliding scale, the greater that they're doing. Do you have anything like that? We do not. So I think that's a great idea if you're bringing on co-GPs and are, that are doing all of those items. Again, for us, we're handling all the CapEx. We're doing the bulk of the asset management. Again, there's some tasks that are being done by the co-GPs. We have an in-house asset manager that's visiting the properties frequently, usually on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Now, the co-GPs, they're visiting when they can. So typically, you know, we'll take the asset management fee and some of the other fees, but the the actual general partner split is where the equity is being divided up. 
Okay, real quick on the capital raising side, what did you used to do to raise capital in the beginning days that's different than what you are currently doing? Yeah, great question. So when we started out, we didn't have a CRM platform. It was really just an Excel spreadsheet of, hey, these are the investors that we built relationships out with. Send out an email via Gmail. Fast forward to today, we have a CRM platform. We also use MailChimp. We also use mass texting. So there's multiple different avenues that we take to make sure that our investors are aware of the investment opportunity that we have in the pipeline and available to them. When do you use mass texting and who do you use? Yeah, great question. So we use simple texting and we'll typically use it when we launch an investment opportunity. So if we're putting on a webinar and if the subscription is opening, you know, we'll send out a mass text saying, hey, our webinars in two hours, you know, come and join us or this investment opportunity just opened up. If you look at the stats online, I mean, text messages, probably a 98% open rate or a lot of articles state yeah. that it's around that percentage. Whereas emails, a lot of times will be in that maybe 30 to 60 percentage range, depending upon what our subject is and what the email is for. So if you can send out a text, I mean, that's going to be likely well-received. Do you use text messaging at all to re-engage any cold leads in your database? We have not, but that's not a bad idea, Ruben. Yeah, I was curious about how you get them. Because it's one thing to get them to open either an email or a text. It's another thing to get them on the phone call or to do yep. something that you want them to do. Just curious about that. Yeah, I think there's a ton of potential there. We're obviously not the absolute best at it, but we're utilizing the technology. But I think there's a lot that can be done with it. Rock and roll. All right, cool, man. Let's jump into the lightning round. My first question to you is what's the best vacation you've ever taken? Best vacation, I would say our first time overseas. We flew into Rome and then we did Santorini, Crete, Athens, and Paris. It was absolutely phenomenal. It's funny, when I grew up, I had no interest in going over to Europe. First time over there blew me away and I can't wait to get back. Yeah, Europe is sick. Definitely get your passport, guys. Favorite book of any kind? I always go back to Shoe Dog. So it's a book about Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. I actually just got done reading it to my 10-year-old daughter and she absolutely adored it. It's just a great book that really shows that if you have extreme persistence and a little bit of creativity, you're gonna be very successful. So I love that one. Excellent. How much of your success do you attribute to mindset? I would say a pretty significant amount, especially in this industry. You know, in multifamily, you can get discouraged very quickly, especially when you're first starting off. Things do not move quickly. And, you know, you can have a lot of setbacks and a lot of letdowns before you see success. So I think you have to keep sharp on your mindset, make sure that you're working on it all the time. And, and I think a lot has to be attributed to that. Would you think that the majority of people that have success have coaches or mentors? That is a great question. I'm not sure on the answer, but I would highly recommend it. Anytime you're stepping into to real estate investing, especially handling other people's money, I mean, you want to alleviate as many mistakes as possible. You want to be a fiduciary for your investors. Get a coach or find someone that's you know done it successful that can at least offer you some guidance along the way. Would you say that there would be a greater benefit to getting a mindset coach or to like an actual systems and real estate kind of coach? I think it depends on your personality. You know, some people have a, a great mindset and they don't need significant help with that. They can always use some sort of help. So I think the mindset piece, it depends on your personality. 
but on the business side, especially if you haven't ran a business before, you need a coach if you're starting up a business or if you're jumping into real estate syndication. Cool, I was just curious because I've heard things like success is 80% mindset and 20% strategy. However, most of the coaches that I see people get involved with are just strategy coaches. So yep. I was just curious about this. How about this, man? How long do you want to live? You know, some people might laugh at this, but I'd like to live until I'm about 125 to 130. I think there are some significant medical advances coming. You know, my wife and I and our, our family are extremely healthy. So I'm hoping I can get there. Wish me luck. No, I think it's possible. I think the human body was designed to live longer than that. So. Yep, I love it. Do you have any hacks for breaking through limiting beliefs? I think if you can surround yourself with people that have broken through those limiting beliefs, that is massive. Also, like you said, getting a coach. I mean, we do a lot of Tony Robbins events, you know, just making sure that you're involving yourself with something that's going to push you forward and get you past those limiting beliefs on a constant basis is huge. You know, I think about it, I went to UPW several times, Unleash the Power Within, very similar content every time, but every year that you walk away from that event, you feel energized, you feel like you can push past those limiting beliefs. And then six, nine months later, you know, you might be slipping a little bit downwards. If you go to another event like that, or you have a coach, up you shoot, so. Fantastic, I love it. All right, biggest difference between who you are now versus who you were in high school? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. I feel like I've always been driven but my interests have changed. So back in high school, I focused all of my attention on extreme sports, was very you know, successful at it, not to full-time professional status, but I rode for quite a few companies and that's shifted over to multifamily. So really my interest has changed and I've enjoyed it. Short answer on this, best way to raise capital from your perspective. Best way to raise capital, I would say, is building extreme trust with your investors and you are going to see a significant amount of referrals along the way. So do what's right, do what you say you're going to do, and you'll build your database pretty quickly. Okay, cool. I used to have a couple of half pipes. I've been snowboarding since 1986. What do you love best about extreme sports? I think you do snowboarding and wakeboarding. Yep. So we do a lot of wake surfing and a lot of snowboarding. I think the creativity that you can involve around the sport is incredible. I also love that we can do it as a family. So when we had our two daughters, my wife and I decided that we wanted to get them into sports that we loved and that we could all do as a family. And so we really focused on wake surfing, we focused on snowboarding, we focused on rock climbing, and we all just have an absolute blast doing it. So we're not sitting at a, a field where we're like, gosh, I can't wait until this is over. We're truly enjoying our time together, which has been fantastic. That's fantastic. All right, cool. Do your spiritual philosophies have anything to do with your success in business? I would say somewhat, definitely. My wife and I are both spiritual, and I think if you have that mindset that there's a higher power out there and you're here for a reason, I think it helps you along. Have you ever experienced a miracle or had a near-death experience? I did have a near-death experience. So I contracted E. coli back when I was 20 years old. You know, just thought it was typical E. coli. I went to the hospital, they put me on meds. And a couple days later, my organs started shutting down. They, they airlifted me to the Mayo Clinic. I spent about two months at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Had blood transfusions, plasma transfusions, went on life support for a few days. It was a really bad ordeal. And luckily I was young, I was healthy before that happened. And I was able to pull through and I had some great support. My wife, who was my girlfriend there, was by my side. 
My business partner, Dan, was another individual that was driving a couple hours, a couple times a week to see me. Super good friend, and so luckily I had a great support system. But yeah, that was, I mean, that was a miracle and a near-death experience as well. Cool, I gotta meet your partner. He's a professional, or was a professional snowboarder at one point as well, correct? Is that what you mentioned? Correct, yep, yep. So Dan's won a few X Games gold medals. Check him out, Dan Breezy, B-R-I-S-S-E online. He's done some really crazy stuff, pretty fun to watch. Good stuff. All right, last question brought to you by Shanna Amigo. She would like to know what impact would you like to leave in the world? Yeah, so impact for us, twofold. We like to donate to two organizations, so every meal, which is a company that fills hunger gaps. So when kids go home on the weekend or in the evening and they don't have food or enough food to eat at home, this organization comes in and they stuff kids' backpacks that are in need full of food after the school day, which is awesome. And then we also donate to Operation Underground Railroad, which helps out with sex slavery. And that's something that we're very, very passionate about. The other thing that I love doing is just educating children on financial literacy. I don't think it's being done in schools today. And so right. we really enjoy doing that with our kids. And we're going to start some pretty cool things in the near future online as well to help other kids. Very cool stuff, man. It'd be, it'd be great if we had more kids-based financial literacy books. That'd be a phenomenal thing for you guys out there that are listening to create one of those because we need to teach our kids how to invest in real estate and do things that they want to do. All right, rock and roll. Shout out to the Capital Razor Nation. Thanks for tuning in and for writing us a five-star review. Also, shout out to Legacy Acquisitions, our company, and my sponsor, Syndication Pro, the Family Office Club, and PitchDex.com. Mike, how does the audience get a hold of you, my friend? Yep, so you can go to GraniteTowersEquityGroup.com, click on the Contact Us page, and you can fill out your information, and we'll reach out to you. Real quick, tell us about your Keeping It Real Estate show. <laughs> Yeah. So Keeping It Real Estate Show is there to help people build a passive income stream. We focus a lot of our attention around multifamily and other real estate investing. We bring on industry professionals. So check it out. I think you're going to love it. Yes, I love the title, Keeping It Real Estate Show. It makes me laugh. <laughs> That's phenomenal. All right. Any last words of wisdom for the aspiring capital raiser and or syndicator as they scale on their journey? Very good question. So I would say stick with it. I see a lot of syndicators that come into the game. They're trying to raise capital or they're trying to put together a deal and things don't happen quick. And so they fall out. So just stick with it. Be persistent. And, you know, it's it's tough nowadays with the economy taking a dip, raising capital. So you're going to need to put in a little bit extra work. Very good stuff, man. Thanks for coming on the show. This has been a blast. I was really good getting to know you. And I got to meet your partner, Dan, man. That would be really great. Sounds great, Ruben. I appreciate you having me on. The Capital 